Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber and I am sitting at a very comfortable distance from Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, that is Anna. My fact this week is that in 1877, all able-bodied men in Nebraska were required by law to spend up to 12 days killing grasshoppers. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Wait a minute. I'm I'm always looking for the loophole. Up to 12 days? (laughs) Mm. It was, well, it was, they had to spend two days, definitely. Um, So you can't get out of a weekend. And then if there was further work needed, then the government, state government could call on you to so, do an extra 10 So it was days. up to 12 days because some people enjoyed it so much it started to look psychopathic and it's like, all right, we need to cut you off here oh, yeah. before <laughs> yeah, exactly. develop something else. You can't devote 365 to it. How many grasshoppers can there be that everyone... I mean, I know Nebraska even now is quite sparsely populated, but mm-hmm. that's a lot of grasshoppers mm. to kill, isn't it? Definitely more than one grasshopper per person. So it was a lot. This was the Rocky Mountain Locust which is a grasshopper. And it was this massive scourge in the 1870s and the 1860s. It basically ruined the kind of Great Plains area. So Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, those kind of areas. And it destroyed crops. It ruined people's livelihoods. It drove the population out and they had to do something. So the states passed various laws saying, get out and do your duty, murder grasshoppers. Wow. It's insane. There's a sighting in 1875, so two years before this law was put into place, where it was estimated that there was 198,000 square miles of locusts swarming. So that's larger than the size of California. In that area of 198,000 square miles, which I reckon is just a little bit smaller than England and Scotland combined, there were 12.5 trillion insects. Okay, and to put that into perspective, if you imagine taking a normal keyboard on your computer and covering all of England and Scotland in keyboards so there's no gaps, Mm -hmm. each grasshopper would have one keyboard to sit on over the whole of England and Scotland. Why? Why are you putting grasshoppers on keyboards? Grasshoppers, given infinite keyboards, (laughs) will eventually... uh... They actually write out the works of Milton, don't they? (laughs) The accounts are extraordinary, aren't they? I mean, even every able-bodied man in Nebraska wouldn't have been able to do a huge amount about this because they ate the wool off sheep when they were passing by, they're just so it's desperate crazy. for food. Yeah. Yeah. They ate clothing off people's backs. I don't I believe that. I mean, no? it's probably true, but like, that is come on. an unsexy striptease. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a woman who claimed it, wasn't there, who said that she was wearing a, a white and green stripy dress and she was descended on by these grasshoppers and they ate all the green stripes, at which point I guess all the white stripes fall off. But... You That's know. where the White Stripes got the name from, actually. The band, <laughs> yeah. they were walking past this woman and were like, where's the rest of her dress? <laughs> there were stories about how trains came to a halt because they were skidding on locusts. Oh, there yeah. were just so many on the ground that they were just, yeah, wiping out. Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote The Little House on the Prairie, um, she was there when this happened. And one of her stories on the banks of Plum Creek, they talk about this happening to her family and she said that her father had to walk 300 miles to find work on a farm that didn't have the grasshoppers on it Jesus, if you can imagine that and that she would walk around and they would squish under her bare feet and she would hear the sound of millions of jaws biting and chewing nice wow I guess I mean if if you're faced with that 
Actually, what good can it do to spend 12 days? 12 days feels a bit under-egged. Yeah, like, so you've got to devote it, the whole year to it. How, wait, how many, how many did you say there were, James? 12 trillion? 12.5 trillion. Okay, so then again, if every... Hang on. 12 if trillion... It, no, if the whole of Nebraska gets a trillion a day... Yes. Then it just needs one guy? <laughs> <laughs> if you have a million people in Nebraska, oh, say, Sorry, they yes. have to get a million each per day. Right. They are small, wow. though. It's a shame that we didn't just, you know, Nebraska didn't just allow this to just continue and there's just one spot on earth where humans are living just completely covered, naked, covered in locusts. <laughs> what? With no food to eat. You know, that is a shame. We send care packages just as an experiment. You know how sometimes big experiments happen? What are we experimenting on? Is there a symbiotic life with locusts that Got we're it. missing out on that they were trying to introduce us to? They actually only eat your clothes off you so they can become your clothes. Exactly. <laughs> mm. Well, some people did suggest that at the time, a symbiotic relationship with them, kind of. So Missouri state entomologist, who's called Charles Riley, he just said that, why don't we just eat them? Mm. They could be um, turned into soup or prepared John the Baptist style. And John the Baptist style is where you fry grasshoppers with honey. Because in Matthew verse 3, chapter 4 in the Bible, it says his meat was locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist when he goes into the desert. Not sure it's going to take off as the next hit restaurant concept, is it? No. No, Yeah. Uh, Wild honey, please. Oh, no. (laughs) The portions are going to be massive. Have you guys eaten locusts? I haven't, but I do know that in Australia, they rebranded them as sky prawns. You know, to make them a bit more appealing. Very high in protein. Like the North Mm. American uh, communities who lived in that area around the time. So, for instance, the Shoshone people, um, they would eat them. So they would turn them into flour and they would make bread out of um, grasshoppers and stuff. So that's how they dealt with it before it happened to the Westerners who went over. Although I don't think they ever had it quite as bad that we know. No, I mean, eating is not a solution to the 12 trillion, is it? You can't just wander down your field with your mouth open (laughs) and go, well, problem solved. My crop's absolutely fine. So the Rocky Mountain locust, uh, which we're talking about, which led to this plague, crazy at the time, and we did fight battle with them, and the battle was won by the humans to the point that they're now an extinct species. Hang on, hang on, hang on. on. You're you're giving us credit for that. No, I'm saying long term, they are no longer on Earth. How did we win the battle? Well, in in, might not be because of us. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm just saying history. They're no longer here. Who writes the history books, Anna? Okay. I'll say say it's because of us. I think you're right, Dan. Well, it's largely because of us, but also as animals, and it was changing agricultural. Yeah. Conditions. It was yeah. Who it was... changes the agricultural conditions? Thank you, James. Who brings the animals? Thank Mr. you, James. Man. Yeah. Fair. There we go. Yeah. But we didn't do it on purpose. We didn't do it on accident. purpose. Yeah, we absolutely <laughs> didn't want to do it, and that's horrible to to decimate a species to extinction. But they can still be found despite being extinct in glaciers around there. There's this one place which is called the Grasshopper Glacier. And it's in Wyoming where all of them have sort of just been frozen in time inside there. And you can see them when you look into it and people can chip them out. Can they come back like Captain America? Or There is a theory. Some scientists think there might be a few lurking <sighs> around somewhere. Not ready to come back. Like the glacier melts and suddenly the grasshoppers take over. Not ready to mount the full counterattack. But there are scientists who think they might still be out there somewhere. Yeah. Well, I thought as in not in the glaciers, but actually out there. I yeah, think, exactly. Right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. so we don't, We've oh. even though we've said like it's agriculture or environmental climate change but really we don't know right right this is a massive mystery and they just vanished so it was 1877 yeah. it was still pretty bad pretty much by the 1880s they'd gone i think the last spotting was in the like the first 1901 or something or right at the start of the 20th century anyway and they vanished but it could just be that they stopped swarming 
because mm. locusts just turn back into grasshoppers when they go out of a swarm yeah, and they yeah. could just be hiding as you say in plain sight waiting to regroup when you say they turn into grasshoppers yeah they don't change do they we just change our name for them yeah it's like literally <laughs> oh. it, one one animal is called a grasshopper when it's with all its mates we call them locusts you're kidding yeah it's not well, like batman and suddenly yeah. it's <laughs> a whole change of well, outfit they kind of they do change outfit they definitely do Actually, because yeah, they, they, get, color, they, they get stronger they get darker they get more mobile their color changes and in fact until the 1920s they were assumed to be different species um mm. it's really weird there were two versions of this desert locust mm-hmm. one one is in hulk mode and one is not <laughs> and they were thought, it was thought that they were completely different how quickly do they change though that feels like that should take a while right well, it's not as soon as they start swarming they just all turn blue kind of is uh, it's really weird so basically they have wild populations which swell up after rains because there's lots of food so plants are growing so they can eat lots but then if the land gets parched they get pushed into a smaller and smaller area and then this chemical serotonin kicks in in their brain, which we have to, uh, which is associated with happiness for us, I think. Yeah. But anyway, not for them, because the serotonin basically turns them into Hulk mode. We don't but, know that they're not happy. That's true. <laughs> they can be thrilled. Um, and they just set off and they go for it. And it's very rare for them to switch out of swarm mode once they're in it, because any offspring born during a swarm are also swarmers. Yes, okay. Got so, it. I actually do know how you can turn them into locusts. Wow. So the way you do that is you tickle them on the back of the legs. Is that right? So, yeah. And scientists tried this. They had this theory that what happens is they are incredibly antisocial. Like grasshoppers hate each other, usually. But when they get hungry, they go to the same bit of food and they start rubbing up against each other. And eventually that rubbing stimulates them to suddenly oh, want to swarm. Do they become figmotactic? I think they become figmotactic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Favorite word? The fish word? It's really the fish word. Friend we should of change the podcast. our name. Friend the of the word podcast. Thick tactic. <laughs> we should have her on. That's really cool. So that explains the serotonin thing, right? Because they become like more loving to their fellow grasshopper. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, Maybe. or at least want to hang out with them. Although there's also a theory that the reason they're swarming is because they all want to eat each other. Yeah, so I don't I, know how much love that. That's yeah. what I read, that if they fall behind in the swarm, whoever's behind will chew them up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a terrible... Really? That happens that's... in the Tour de France as well. <laughs> so one really important important thing of this locust swarm in the 1870s and 1880s is what did the farmers do because basically all of their crops were taken they had no way of making any money but also they had no food because all the crops had been eaten by locusts and so they asked the state for money but the state couldn't give them enough because basically everyone was affected and so they went to the federal government and there was a real discussion about that because Basically, they thought that the farmers might be turned soft if they gave them any any help, any charity, right? And so they came up with these tests to make sure that you were worthy enough to get aid. As a farmer, you had to pledge an oath that you possessed nothing of value that could be sold for food or clothing in order to get any charity at all. Sounds oh like, is this word. where Jacob Rees-Mogg started his career? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, wow. in the end, though... Uh, eventually the federal government did step in and kind of gave aid packages and food packages to everyone and that was the start of what is now the typical response to um, disasters in America mm. there was also oh. a fire in Chicago a bit earlier that did a similar thing but yeah this was wow. this was a big step for America for, as far as state aid was concerned so they sort of did them a favor yeah in the long run exactly good old locusts <laughs> good old locusts another coping mechanism they had actually before that came in was in Minnesota they had huge vats of boiling water that they kept in the centre of like some of the big cities there and there was a bounty of 50 cents a bushel on the locusts and apparently 130,000 grasshoppers equals one bushel so you've got to get quite a lot okay. to get your 50 okay. cents yeah. and then you bring them to the city and you chuck them in this vat of boiling water right isn't that called like a cauldron yeah oh, just to, to kill them off 
Yeah, yeah. Not to make a soup. No. No, no. otherwise it's, you just got a big locust lolly. When they've tried that in various places around the world, what often happens is people just start breeding the animal, don't they? Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> Poor guys at yeah. Jimmy's Cricket Shop, which breeds crickets, <laughs> seeing this cloud on the horizon. Well, yeah. Bango's business. Why, why is he not calling it Jiminy Crickets? <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it did almost bankrupt the state. Actually, they had to cancel it almost straight away because everyone really? was bringing in so many. Well, the bushel, the bushel, the bushel yeah. offer. Well, yeah, it's the twelve-day thing. Yeah, because too many business, new wow. businesses. Yeah, can't afford it. Um, have you guys heard of a mega colon? Mm. Just... Oh, I thought that was you impersonating one. Yeah, it did. <laughs> like that. yeah, it's not a punctuation mark. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, I think I involuntarily made. It's like I've been hypnotised to make that noise when I hear. <laughs> That's being said. Very obscure. Darren Brown never thought that would come up in your life again. <laughs> um, a megacolon mm. is you would... <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so this thing which I was talking about, it's what happens if you get an infection in your colon. And there was a mummy from 1,000 years ago um, which had this infection. And it was scanned with an electron microscope. And what they found is that for the last few months of his life, he'd been fed solely on grasshoppers. So that's all he'd eaten. And what they'd done is we could tell from the microscope that they'd taken all the legs off the grasshoppers and just and the heads and just got the bodies, which is really high in protein, and just kind of squished them together and given them to this guy. And this, as far as we can tell, is the earliest example of any kind of nursing or hospice care wow. in the human race that we have direct evidence for. Wow. But he had but to didn't... prove that he'd sold off anything he had of value <laughs> before. <laughs> That's awesome. A mega colon. Mm. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that when Henriette d'Angeville held a reception to celebrate being the first woman to climb Mont Blanc, one guest was Maria Paradis, who had been to the top of the mountain 30 years earlier. Riddle me that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. She didn't climb it, she swam up. Because it was underwater. Oh, yeah, she was dropped on She uh, from a plane. First of all, Anna (laughs) gets half a point because she didn't climb up, allegedly. Okay. Um, But she wasn't dropped by a plane, so you get minus 10. She was was pretty hefty. She was born there. She was born there. She'd been to the top of the mountain 30 years earlier. That's where her mum gave birth to her. But then her mother would also have had to be there and so would have then been the first (sighs) woman at the top. Yeah, except she was dropped from a plane. And that's how she got there. (laughs) What year was this, James? Um, So this was 1838 when Don Javille went up, but Maria Paradis went up in 1808, and what happened was she was dragged up, weeping. (laughs) Kicking and screaming. (laughs) Well, not really doing anything, because she kind of passed out halfway up the mountain. Wow. Is that a really fun drunken night out prank kind of thing? We'll have her wake up at the top of Mont Blanc. You'd usually carry someone rather than drag. That's very caveman, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, um, it was... So, basically what happened was, uh, in 1808... A few people had already gone up Mont Blanc and they kind of talked this 18-year-old servant from Chamonix called Marie Paradis to go up Mont Blanc. And they said, if you do this, you'll become kind of famous and you'll be able to make a load of money and maybe it will help the hotel that you're working in. It will give them some publicity. And so she's like, yeah, fine. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? We know about what happened because she spoke to Alexander Dumas in 1811 and she told him, 
that as she was almost to the top, she felt her legs go to hell, she said. And then the people who were going up with her decided to take her each under one arm and drag her to the top. She was pulled, dragged and carried to the top of the mountain. Okay. And then 30 years later, this high society woman called Henriette Dongeville decided that she wanted to be the first person to really walk up Mont Blanc. And she did that. And then she invited this um, Maria Paradis to come to her party afterwards. And there's a little bit of kind of classism because... First of all, uh, Marie Paradis was like, I can't believe that a real lady managed to get all the way up to a mountain. I'm a peasant woman. I know the country. I should be able to do it. I can't believe you would. But then Henriette was kind of dismissive of her. And she's like, well, at least I went up by my mm. own accord and, mm. and yeah. stuff. So. She almost didn't get up on her own accord, she did, did she? Yeah. There was, she had exactly the same moment. What, Henriette? Actually. Yeah, Henriette. Oh. She had the same where she suddenly buckled and she was on her back and... And there were questions from the rest of the camp. Do we carry her up? And she managed, fortunately, to sort of get her wits about her. And she she said, no, I can do this. I can do this. But mm. yeah, almost yeah, carried up. Um, the person who went up with her um, was called Joseph Coutet or Coutet. And when she kind of got near the top and she felt like falling asleep, she felt really woozy. Um, Coutet said, look at her asleep again. This is the last lady I take up Mont Blanc. <laughs> Although that does sound like a euphemism when I read it, doesn't it? Oh, I took her up my blog. Oh, what if this whole fact is a euphemism? A really raunchy night. Oh, my God. God. Well, it was quite raunchy because Henriette d'Angeville, when she climbed up, she was wearing a boa. She was wearing a... Constrictor or feather? Feather or fur, possibly. But she, she... Because, obviously, climbing gear for women did not exist at the time because only mad aristocratic ladies who were starting it... She was wearing a petticoat over men's trousers and then a bonnet with a veil and then a boa. The whole thing weighed about six kilos. Yeah, so it was re- I mean, that's really Yeah, heavy it's really weird, isn't it, that with... she basically had to wear the men's clothes yeah. because obviously that's the you know convenient way to get to the top, but she still felt like she had to wear the women's stuff over the top. Yeah. 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 And there is this amazing picture of her going over a crevasse with a ladder, which I actually didn't realise was the thing that you did in climbing and it looks absolutely terrifying <laughs> when she's doing it because, you know, it's this <laughs> massive drop in the middle of it. The ladder's just going between these two cliff edges and she's there with these extremely heavy skirts, which you would have sort of scrambling over, which she would have thought is going to tip you over any minute. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons that she went up supposedly is that she was quite jealous of other well-known women that were kind of talking about going up Mont Blanc. So um, the writer Georges Sand, who you'll all know, I'm sure, who's kind of mostly famous for wearing men's clothes, but she was kind of a really (laughs) famous writer who at the time was bigger than Victor Hugo and uh, Balzac and people like that. Um, But she was kind of doing a lot of walking in the foothills of Mont Blanc and she was talking about how she might soon go up uh, and Henriette Dongeville decided, no, she was going to do it first. That's great. So, was yeah, that a prank? prank? That's what I would do if I was trying to trick someone into going up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I might go tomorrow morning. I know the weather looks a bit dodgy. But... <laughs> yeah. the, the clothing, I mean, it is, it is mad that women were made to wear dresses. And there were sort of, you know, there were a few women who were supposedly threatened with legal cases for the fact that they were wearing men's trousers. It was so controversial at the time. 
And there were systems where they did try to cheat it. So I read about Aubrey LeBlonde, who climbed Rotorn, which is a mountain about 2,000 meters high. And so there was a sort of compromise, which is that you would leave where you were staying. Let's say you're staying in a hotel wearing the dress or the skirt that you had with the trousers on. And then you would take it off while you were doing the actual mountain climbing. And maybe no one would tell each other. But so she made it to the top. And then on the way down, realized she'd left her skirt up there. So had to backtrack, go back up, reascend this giant mountain. To Wait, get so she her. had to carry her skirt to the top after dropping. She didn't just leave it in a bush or something where she took it off. She carried yeah, it that way up with you, her. You would leave it somewhere safe, like if you're going swimming or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah you don't swim holding your clothes up above the water with you, do you? <laughs> well, some of us do, you know. My sister once was climbing up a hill in the Lake District and then went to the top. And when she got to the bottom, she realized she'd left her phone at the top. And that's how come all the way back up the hill again no. to get her phone. Hey, have you all heard of Annie Smith Peck? Annie Smith Peck is a mountaineer. She climbed the Matterhorn in 1850. And it's just so interesting because she had to do it with total hatred from all the male companions who were taking on again because they just didn't want women doing it she wore trousers they hated that scandalous mm. so when she went up one thing that happened was they would constantly like the guys were just always having temper tantrums there would be strikes but at one point because they kind of just wanted to get rid of her as part of the party they said that well it said that when she was going across a crevasse field when she went out of view they cut the rope the support rope no. that was looking oh, after on. her no. went back to camp and then she had to make her way back and found them all sitting there and they were like oh you're still here no wow. did that actually happen that's according to the accounts yeah and i think her accounts well, um there was a lot happened. of i mean she was she was really impressive she once hung a votes for women sign off the peak of a mountain in peru just yeah, to make who's a point. see that? Which, I mean, good point. <laughs> no one after her companions cut the ropes from the you sign. You want to do it in the middle of Trafalgar Square or somewhere where people walk past all the day. That's a really good point. Um, yep, can't fault you on that. <laughs> um, and then another time, she climbed another mountain in Peru, the North Peak of Huascaran, okay, with some, some Swiss guides. And it was renamed in her honour. Uh, it was renamed Cumbre Ana Peck. But at that point, the record, I think the highest altitude maybe for a woman or maybe for that peak, but it was held by another lady mountaineer called Fanny Workman. And oh, yeah. Legend. Well, another legend, but, you know, there was beef between them because Workman was so annoyed that Peck was claiming this record that she paid for engineers to go and recalculate the altitude of the mountain <gasps> and establish that she had actually climbed 600 metres oh less than she had claimed to, than Peck had claimed. 600 metres? So that's so she a would big still recalculation. It is a pretty big recalculation. <laughs> oh, <wow>. yeah. <laughs> so that workmen would still have the record. That's pretty. No way. Yeah. Um, so just while well, you're saying Annie Smith-Peck having something named after her, oh, yeah. the Matterhorn, not long after um, she went up that, there was another explorer who had a bit of it named after her. So this was a mountain called Felicite Carroll and um, she unfortunately didn't make it to the summit when she was going she was with her father and it's because she was wearing a skirt and the skirt ballooned in the wind and they thought this is too dangerous you can't go any higher your skirt's going to get in the way so the spot where that happened is named the Matterhorns Col Felicite and oh. yeah oh. after her but she never got to make it to the top as a result it could have blown her up there like Mary <laughs> Brown yeah. that's, that's true, true. <laughs> did you bring an umbrella as well <laughs> um, have you heard of the book Mountaineering in Scotland no. no. This is by an author called W.H. Murray, William Hutchison Murray. Any relation? No. Not, not as far as I know. I wish. Because this is an amazing sounding book. It was written on sheets of toilet paper in prisoner of war camps in oh. Germany during the war. Oh. So Murray had been sent by his mother the complete works of Shakespeare. 
in the post. And that was an earlier time of the war when you, the Red Cross parcels were still getting through and, and you could receive post and things like that. It's a lot of postage, that, isn't it? It's a lot of postage, yeah. But he noticed that the paper was lovely and soft and it was actually a lot better than the stuff that they were being given as toilet paper. So it sounds like he used the complete works of Shakespeare as loo roll and he <laughs> saved his loo roll and wrote his own book about mountaineering <laughs> on the loo paper. Oh, my God. I know, but the worst thing was, then he was moved. He wrote for a year, presumably getting along quite well with his first draft. What kind of, what was he writing with? Do we know? Just, no, I don't, oh, I don't know, actually. I don't know how he got a pen or a pencil. Yes. Was it 2B or not 2B? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. You walk straight into that one. <laughs> Um, but then he was moved. He was moved to another camp called Offlag 8F, and it was a much stricter prison camp. I mean, I, I don't know how lenient the previous one was, but basically the Gestapo searched everyone very carefully on the way in, and his stash of toilet paper with a book on it was found and taken off him, and he had to write an entire second draft on more toilet paper. No. Yeah. Oh, God. I know. He claimed that the Gestapo had done him a favour because his first draft was a bit, a bit flabby. <laughs> Needed a bit of time for me. Yeah. The most generous prisoner of war you've ever heard. Do I actually you, kind of like the Gestapo. <laughs> do you think that when he only had the toilet paper left, that he kind of would hold it in so that he didn't use it? By the end, he would have had a mega colon, I reckon. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that the Queen in her garden has a collection of fake rocks. She has a lot of gardens. Do we have? A she has specific? a lot of gardens. She has gardens at Buckingham Palace, though, uh, specifically. Oh, so this is in the main garden. Her main garden, I would say. Uh, there is a fake rock called Pulamite, and she's got a load of it. Is it sorry? Is that specific rock cool? But did she name it Pulamite? Like, cool. She's got Dave sitting next <laughs> no, to it. No, the no, real this, rock. This, Sorry, the, yeah, this is a kind of rock invented uh. by. It's so weird that you can invent a rock. There was a gardener called James <laughs> Pullum, and um, he he invented this rock, and it became a craze. Can you explain to us how you invent a rock? Yeah. So he was a gardener, mm. and he noticed that there was a bit of a trend going on for when people have been traveling. And they might bring plants back with them. And this relates to the Victorian fern craze as well. There's a big craze for having ferns and collecting ferns. So the problem is that ferns don't like growing on lawns, you know, and most gardens at the time were, you know, nice flat lawns of grass. And he was a gardener and also he knew a bit about engineering and he started offering people their own personal ravines to put their alpine plants and ferns in. And he made this material from his own recipe and he took the recipe to his grave. And so he started offering people their own personal uh, rocks that you could shape and build and mold into the, exactly the shapes uh, that you wanted. And this became a craze. People, lots and lots of gardens yeah. had it's these fake rocks in. environmentally friendly because you don't have to go and dig it out of a mountain or something. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. It takes yeah. a lot less transportation. Yeah. Um, and it was because it does sound like a thing that would be shunted by the rich as something you know we just want natural stuff mm. but as you say you know the queen has it in buckingham palace um many famous family the rothschilds and so on were, were all really keen on it so this was yeah it was a yeah. it was a big deal it was a it, big deal it's in everywhere i no longer trust any rocks i see yeah. <laughs> I think, what if this is pulamite there's yeah. a big list online isn't there of all the places you can find it including las vegas Really? Yeah, the Bellagio, there's like, um, I think there's a fountain that's made out wow. of it. Wow. Well, the I first time that we properly, I think, outside of a show, saw each other during the sort of first lockdown having ended was we were at St. James's Park, weren't we? We were mm. sitting there and the rocks by the Duck Island Cottage 
are also those kind of rocks. Really? Are they? Right next to exactly. Their no work. rock is safe from Fulham. <laughs> it's really insane. Even seaside towns like Folkestone, Ramsgate, they went nuts for it. They actually, oh. I think, quite badly damaged the council finances by spending all their money on Pulamite <laughs> um, because they wanted extra rocks for the sea to make it more rocky. Okay. They thought, this isn't That's, rocky enough. That just makes swimming in the sea more and more unpleasant. Well, I think it's not inside the sea. So, for example, Folkestone got paths and tunnels to get people down from the cliffs. They wanted a gorgeous oh. natural way to to show people down. And so next time you see a rock, check. Yeah, yeah check. <laughs> how, so how can you check? Can you give it a knock and it's hollow? It's most not right, it's a rocks, rock. Most of the rocks you see day to day will be rocks. That's oh, just, sure. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. But that's that's just law of averages. But yeah. do take a photo They're... and send them to Andy anytime you see a rock. <laughs> I will go through them. I'll tell you if your They're rock They're a bit is... lighter, aren't they? They're yeah. lighter than normal okay. rocks. And they'll just look faker. They'll look a little bit like when you're queuing at a theme park, you know, the rockeries that you have. Not quite as plastic Not as, as that. Not as plastic. But yeah. no, yeah. something towards it's, that. It's yeah. a more realistic version of that, you're but right. they were incredibly successful, weren't they, James Pullum? He set up this company, which was James Pullum and & Son, and it was a company that just went on and on. So when he retired, he handed it over to his son, James Pullum, and then when he retired, he handed it over to his son, James Pullum. And then when he retired, he handed it over to his son, James Pullum. I think it was the second James Pullum who invented Pullumite, wasn't it? As opposed to the first one. I think you're right. I think. Oh, so, yeah. Okay, minus one of the James Pullums from that <laughs> list there. He was helped by two of the other James Pullums later in life, but also helped by another brother called Michelangelo Pullum. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> he's not living up to that name. It's it's so good. Everyone else in the family's called James and he's called Michelangelo. But it's two names, isn't yeah. it? It's he's Michael Angelo Pullum. They've divided Michelangelo oh, in two. Right. He's, yeah. You know, to to the untrained eye, he's Michael Pullum. And he did all name the, Angelo, but he did all of the designing, didn't he, did he? As well, yeah. So if you ever needed a rock, but it needs to be in a certain shape, you gave it to Michelangelo Pullum, <laughs> and he did the shaping for That's it. That's brilliant. If you ever want a cherub to be emerging from your rock, <laughs> hey, so we should give a shout out to the book about this uh, by Claude Hitching. Ah, he's Claude a, Hitching, what a man! He is the man on Pullumite. Yeah. So he's written a book called The Pullum Legacy. And um, I mean, he has spent, I think, decades tracking down bits of Pulamite because we still don't know where it all is. That's why I'm saying you've got to check. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all over the country, but there weren't, you know, accurate records kept of everywhere this company worked. So, I mean, it's yeah. not as urgent as like landmines and stuff, is it? <laughs> Nothing's going to happen if we don't <laughs> yeah, find yeah, it. That's true. I don't know. <laughs> when he started looking into it, he discovered that five of his direct ancestors all had worked for the Pullum Company at some point. Oh, and so wow. he had really? a personal connection. Yeah. And so basically he has, as Andy says, spent so long trying to track down where bits of missing Pullumite have gone, sort of historically important bits in the Pullumite world. Where have they gone where Pullumite fans are like, oh, I can't believe we lost this. <laughs> and some of them have turned up in places like he found there was the Q Fountain, which was made for the International Exhibition in 1862. Oh, really? It had disappeared. And where is it now? It's where James said earlier, Las Vegas. It found its way there. Oh, that's the one of the Bellagio. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. That is that was a famous one in, in the UK. Pulamite fans distressed <laughs> that they couldn't find it anymore. It disappeared. That's incredible. Um, one amazing Pullum legacy, uh, one of the biggest projects of James Pullum number three is the landscape garden at Friar Park. Oh yeah. Um, which is, yeah, and you Dan Wait, would know that? about this. <laughs> it's near Henley, and you'll see why Dan knows about this. It's maintained by a woman called Olivia Harrison, who is George Harrison's widow. And oh. they bought it, but it sounds incredible. So originally it was sort of designed by its owner, who's called Frank Crisp, this really eccentric guy who basically, why are you looking at it's me? It's a so funny it's name. It's a nice name. It's a funny name. <laughs> He's a Frank Crisp. Crisp by name. Crisp by nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
He was a crispy, eccentric man who designed his garden to look like an alpine landscape, basically. So full of these fake rocks that he got done by Pullum. Well, and-, he, and sorry, just with the alpine thing, he actually had a model of the Matterhorn made. Yes. Out of, wow. out of rock. So not a, actual size. Not actual size, <laughs> different scale, yeah. Um, but yeah, the Matterhorn is there. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah amazing. Um, so it takes up like lots of acres, that Matterhorn. It's pretty big. And that's not Pullum, that was someone else. Yeah. But basically it got really overgrown. I think some nuns moved into it for a while oh, and it got yeah. dilapidated. And then George Harrison uh, bought it and said, I'm going to take this over. And they cleared it and they found all this stuff. Like the Matterhorn was just sort of sticking out of a bunch of rubble. Mm. They barely even knew it was there. And it sounds like he had this incredible moment, George. There's some sort of fake lakes built there. And at one point he lowered himself on a rope into this cavern that was below this lake. So the I guess cavern? there's lakes on a... Yeah, there's like a cave the below club. this Sorry, the cavern club or yeah, what? What? The cavern club where the Beatles played in Liverpool. I should know that. Even I yeah. know that. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> actual beetle hater (laughs) maybe that's what drew him to it that's Mm, how he knew because he lowered himself into this cavern and underneath was this whole grotto so like Pulamite grotto with these um, sparkling kind of quartz and stuff on the walls this like crazy magical landscape and yeah and now you can kind of row through it and look at all these diamonds glistening on the walls and stuff and yeah it sounds incredible they do keep discovering these places so even recently, in 2000, there was a couple who moved into a house, uh, Dewstow House it was called, and they started to notice uh, all these weird rocks sticking out of the ground. Okay. And they then started digging, and they discovered this huge labyrinthine underground environment, this massive rock garden, magical caverns, water flowing from one to another, tunnel systems, fountains, fake stalactites. The whole God. thing was this enormous, mad Pulamite project which uh, a man called Henry Oakley had had commissioned. He was a railway director, and he spent years having this incredible environment built for himself, which just got buried. It got buried under the the M4, as it were, because (laughs) there were all these mounds of earth that were excavated to build the M4, and they just got dumped on top of it. Okay. Um, And the owners started to notice, and they started excavating it. And then, a few years after that, it won the award. Alan Titchmarsh did a series on Britain's best back gardens, and it came in at number eight. Oh, what a renaissance. Yeah. That little bit of land. Number eight. eight. Yeah, number eight. Yeah, Yeah. not not in the top (laughs) seven. top five, yeah. (laughs) Imagine how exciting it is. I honestly think that all our listeners should go home now and dig up their entire gardens (laughs) in (laughs) case there's a Pulamite grotto under them. It's worth a try. Such a good idea. You know, Pulamite obviously wasn't the first fake rock mm. and the sort of the, the only successful fake rock and the first of the 1700s was Codestone. So mm. this was the 1770s. It was basically invented and it was the fake rock to have. And there were lots of startups, lots of fake rock startups that tried to make their own. Nothing came anywhere close to Codestone. And it was this business that was run for 50 years by this amazing woman, Eleanor Code, who just decided, I think it was 1771, she met this guy who made some fake stone and she bought up this massive factory and said, okay, start making it. And she fired him almost immediately because decided he wasn't good enough and brought on someone better at making fake rock. And she was an amazing businesswoman. So 50 years, uh, she made this stone, which if you've seen the lion on the South Bank, that big lion, that's made of code stone. And that is hollow, so you can tell by knocking on it. And if you look inside code stone, which usually you can't because it's like a statue, if you drill inside, you can see the fingerprints of the people who pushed it into the plaster moulds on the inside. Oh, that that is cool. Code sounds awesome. Doesn't she? Eleanor Code, because she worked with her mum. 
for decades, also called Ellen and Code, and there's a lot of confusion about which yeah. Code was which. Yeah. yeah. And her, have you read about her grandma? No. Ellen Code. Her grandma. I actually don't know first name of her grandma. Is there a thing about having being a person who makes rocks and having no imagination for names? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's very much kept in the family, yeah. the rock thing. Um, yeah, Elena Code's grandmother obviously had the business mindset as well. She ran a textile business in Tiverton and she sent spies to Norwich, which was very good on textiles, who would then steal all of their tricks, wow. then come back and be successful. And she did things like she got carried around Tiverton in a sedan chair all the time. <laughs> she was a good character. Wow. <laughs> she sounds awesome. Yeah. Have you guys heard of Gunite? It's another no, fake gunite. rock. Uh, can you guess how you make gunite? Fire it from a gun. Correct. No. <laughs> yes. You um you get a gun. It's not a like a small gun. It's like a big sort of hose pipe gun, and you fire out this dry sort of concretey material, and then you have a little bit of water at the nozzle of the gun, which kind of goes into the concrete as it comes out, and then you can cool. fire it wherever you want to put a rock. So it's cool. Almost like a three D printer for rocks. <laughs> and it's awesome. used on bridges, isn't it? If you ever see a bridge, really, or a tunnel, then it's probably gunite or shotcrete. It also gets called the dry and wet oh, versions. Shotcrete gets used in taxidermy, I think. Yeah. Does it? Yeah. It's because it's quite easy to shape. It's yeah, exactly. And so, you, is it. God, I've forgotten. But is it you're shaping and then you're putting the scale on top of it? If, or, well, what you can do with concrete is you can make the shape of something out of iron and you can fire the concrete onto mold. it and it will, yeah, like a mold oh. and it will go on that. Yeah, kind of thing. So you don't cool. have to make a mold for it. You can't fire it because what, what's it landing on? You can't just fire it into midair in a certain shape like a spark plug. Of course, of course. <laughs> that makes sense. That's awesome. Um, ugly rocks are sort of venerated in China. Um, I didn't really know about this thing, scholars' rocks, but you'd recognise them. And since the 8th century, Confucians have, Confucian academics have basically said, ugly, uh, jagged rocks are great for contemplation. And the idea is that they represent Confucianism, they're uncompromising. So from the 8th century, there's been a trend for getting the ugliest rock you can find, or the most jagged or pitted or misshapen, putting it in your garden and watching it. <laughs> That's really See amazing. what happens. Wow. I know, Anna. I think I know this about you because I know it about me. You used to collect rocks when you were a kid, right? Yeah, I found in my gravel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you like look for the ugly ones or for the attractive ones? Or? I was very shallow. I wasn't a philosopher. I just went for the fit ones. Yeah. <laughs> Something pink and sparkly. Wow. Are there competitions? There actually like, should be. Well, ugly they are... rock of the year. <laughs> there must be. Because <laughs> they're judged on certain qualities, so it right. must be for the sake of something. There are four categories, and these were determined by a guy called Mi Fu in the 12th century, who used to... When... He was in charge of the Mi Fu movement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a great campaigner for his day, and he used to bow to rock, so when he met royalty, he'd walk in and bow to the rock instead of the emperor, and people got annoyed. Instead of the emperor? <laughs> yeah. What a cavalier attitude he had to his own life. Maybe, maybe he was just short-sighted. We I, don't know. I met the queen the other um, a couple of years ago, but I only really talked to the Pelamite rocks in fucking <laughs> palace. <laughs> anyway, they're judged. Just to finish that, they are judged on their thinness, their openness, their holes, and their wrinkles. You want to max out on all of that? Aren't we all? (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that following a theory that they wouldn't burn up on re-entry, Japanese scientists once planned to fly paper airplanes from the International Space Station back onto Earth. Okay. Very cool. Now, why does that mean, therefore, you do it? Because I understand that maybe you wouldn't burn up because you're not going that fast. Mm. But even so, is it instead of something? Well, it's, I guess we are always trying to work out different ways of doing space travel, uh, constantly seeing, yeah. you yeah. know, mm-hmm. we, who knows how important yeah. space paper light, lightweight, paper. lightweight vehicles for re-entry would be immensely useful to have. So if you can start... You're not going to sit on a paper aeroplane, are you? Well, no, but you might sit inside a big paper aeroplane, or treated card or something, or, you know, there are chemical compounds. Oh, is that what it's testing? They would have... I mean, that's what they said the justification was, was lighter vehicles (laughs) for re-entry. you don't need a reason for science, Hannah. You can do science for science's sake. Good point. Quite right. It, It discovers its own discoveries. Is that yeah. what that's what the scientists say, isn't it? Yeah, that's what that's the that's the line. That's yeah. the official line. Cool. In Latin. So um, how come they never did these happen? Well, it's a really hard thing to do. It was a really nice idea. So this was in two thousand and eight, and there were researchers at the University of Tokyo who teamed up with Japan's Origami Airplane Association. So this was going to be origami paper planes that were put together and put through. And so they did all these tests in wind tunnels at the university. And they managed to show that this plane could actually hold its own at huge speeds of wind passing through it. So it all looked like it could possibly work. The problem is, is that if they did try it and it came back into the earth, it's so tiny without any GPS device on it, we would just know nothing. It would be impossible to tell in I, 2008. I think another problem is, a, I would say at least two thirds of the paper airplanes that I ever make either kind of go straight up and stall and land where I threw them or go straight down and crash into the ground. So you need to train (laughs) your astronauts to be proper paper airplane makers, don't you? That's true. And they've already got a lot on their plates. They've got a lot of training to do. Well, origami is useful in space in other ways, isn't it? So I guess I can see where they're coming from. Is it? I think it's been used by Japan on solar panels. And in Mm. fact, by NASA more recently, they certainly had a plan to, and they use Miura folds. And I think, mm. is that how you pronounce it? We've done it on Mira, QI. Yeah. Mirror folds are basically how you fold maps, for instance, you know, when they fold up really small and flat, and then you can spring them outwards so that they're really big. It's almost like an accordion. Oh. Like you, they're in a really small little square, and then you pull them out, and then you push them back in, and pull them out, and push them back in. And they're re- <laughs> like a normal map, you're always trying to find the folds and stuff, but yeah. these just kind of go back where they should do. That's really cool. Because it'd be so annoying if an accordion was like a normal map where every time you pushed it in, you had to fold it in exactly the right way. <laughs> what do you think is the world record for folding 1,000 origami cranes? Um, a thousand. <laughs> Damn it! The, what time? How uh, long do you think ooh. it took the person? So, do you remember I did this a few years yeah. ago? Yeah, yes. it took me about two months. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you were you did it in the office as well because yeah. you're hiding it from your. It was a present for your wife, and yeah, yeah. so I wasn't hiding it from my wife. <laughs> yeah, uh, because, it was a present for yeah, her. So you were. I was really it. embarrassed, and I, you know, didn't want to tell her. No, it was a gift. But um, yeah, how long do you reckon it takes to do a thousand? Eight oh. hours. Eight hours. That's I think a fast. bit less than one a minute. But this is maybe. going to be the record, right? So this is someone who's. I, I'm going to say I'm going to go as low as like two hours. Just what? For the, just a for the thousand? Yeah, just because like. Blah, 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 but how many seconds are there in an hour? It's not going to take a second to do a crane. Surely a minute to do a crane. A bit less, maybe. I think it'll take a couple of minutes. I I don't know. I think a couple of days. 
couple of days. Thank you, Andy, because these oh. two. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jay. Poor Evelyn Chia of Colchester, England. <laughs> Henceforth known as the slacker. What did she do? Then? She is a teenager from Colchester and she did it in nine hours and 31 minutes. Well, that's wow. much more impressive than I would have thought, Dan and Anna. <laughs> I think. Two hours. How good do they have to be? I mean, can I just scrunch up lots of bits of paper and claim their cranes? I'll be honest, when I did it towards the end of the thousand, they got less and less looking like (laughs) cranes. Did you hide those cranes at the back of the crowd? You really do, yeah. Um, But she did it as a fundraiser for NHS charities. Uh, And in fact, I gave her some money for it because I was so impressed because it did take me literally two months to do it. That's very cool. Oh, cool. Um, But yeah. That's lovely. I was reading the Encyclopedia Britannica article on origami and the origins of it. Mm. uh, And it's the first unequivocal document that um, talks about origami is a poem by Ihara Saikaku, uh, which was written in 1680, um, which talks about these butterflies uh, made from paper. But this guy, Ihara Saikaku, he once composed 23,500 verses in a single day. Wow. Yeah. Does um, it have a chorus? Is it a cheat? <laughs> like half of them are the same? I think they're on different subjects. Are there even that many subjects? Apparently so. <laughs> uh, and apparently in the 20th century, origami was helped by the fact that it was used a lot in Rudolf Steiner's schools. Mm. Um, ah. Which, Dan, you you went to one I of those, was a Steiner, yeah, I'm a Steiner kid. Uh, did you learn how to make origami? Yeah, stuff? we did, but we did do Japanese classes, so I don't know if if it was integrated. Like, I don't. We didn't have uh, separate origami. Ah, okay, because apparently, according to the article, they emphasise kind of hands-on learning for mm. kids as opposed to rote learning, and so yeah, origami was very popular, especially in the German Steiner schools. Okay, yeah, the original. Oh. No, we, I mean we definitely did origami at school. Definitely. That's that's very interesting because I think Germany kind of brought advanced origami to Japan via kindergartens. The kindergarten movement obviously started in Germany. It's a German word. And this is the 1830s. And this guy, Friedrich Froebel, decided that origami would be a great way of educating children in both maths and art, because it's very mathematical and logical uh, and like very difficult spatial reasoning, but also quite artistic. And he exported this around the world with his kindergarten movement, and it was really taken up in Japan, where they were already doing quite a lot of slightly simpler origami, but then they started making pigs and houses and sofas and cool. So like Germany exported origami to Japan, is what you're saying? I'm saying Japan had a kind of origami and then Germany exported wow. a more advanced we kind. I think probably invented in China uh, origami oh. because um, paper was invented in China. So Figures. Um, yeah. yeah, probably the first people to fold paper were the first people to invent it, but then <laughs> went to Japan and became big there, then came over, um, picked up by Germany improved sent back over to japan again and if there are for german japanese chinese listeners we are not denigrating any origami achievements of any countries okay please don't write in and if you do please don't fold it in such a way that we can't read the letters (laughs) (laughs) um the person who popularized origami in the west is a guy called gershon legman and (laughs) Uh, was he a breast man or a leg man Well, it's funny you should ask. He did a bunch of other things. So the way he popularized it was he found this um, origami prodigy called Akira Yoshizawa and he put on exhibitions of his work and stuff and it it all spread. But uh, the other things he tried, he tried lots of stuff, Gershon Legman. He collected vulgar limericks. So he had a massive collection of um, obscene limericks. He wrote the book, The Rationale of a Dirty Joke. Yes. Seminal set of books. And it's by someone called Legman? Well, it's also called by, what's his first name? Gershon. Gershon, but he uses G. Um, so G Spot Legman. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, G. Sp- 
Oh, as in G dot. Yeah, so G spot leg man was the name for his. Um... You, that's a stretch, though. Don't, you don't call it a spot, do you? You don't say. Can you put a spot at the end of that sentence, please? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was yeah, that was his little gag. Wow. That he, um... Cool. This wow. is so weird seeing the interests of Dan intersect with what we're talking about. <laughs> Not dirty jokes. I just mean jokes in general. I just you know. know. Yeah, these books are like cult classics. Yeah. I had no idea. Is it, yeah. Or and he, well, and he wrote. Yeah, because he wrote stuff about how to give good oral sex. I think like. The best oral sex and gratification. I'm, Maybe that's I'm not where saying you know if I from. have that copy, uh, but yeah, I've definitely got the joke books. He invented the vibrating dildo. Got that. Got that. <laughs> okay, well, you can have a spin-off Gershon Legman podcast, but yeah, cool guy. Wow, the prodigy you just mentioned, Akira Yoshiwaza, he does sound very interesting. Uh, he pioneered wet folding. Before that, I'm not sure wow. wet folding was a technique. And can you explain what, you... what wet folding <laughs> Absolutely. is? Absolutely. Wet folding is the main, I'd say, division in the origami world. Uh, yeah. Wet folders dampen the paper so they can get the curves just right. Dry folders, I don't need to explain. <laughs> don't <laughs> do the, the wettening. And yeah, so Yoshiwaza was the guy who um, really? he worked as an origami man from 1937 onwards. I think when he was very young. Right. Uh, yeah, and he... Um, he eliminated cutting from the procedure. So you used to cut the paper, I think, before you were folding okay. it. Okay. And that's another, again, a, you know, Fosbury flop moment in the development of origami where, you know, you're not cutting things because that's like making a snowflake when you're a kid. Mm. You know, you fold it up and you cut. Yeah. And then yeah, you yeah. That feels like the anti-Fosbury flop moment. That's like you've banned the Fosbury flop and you're back stuck with a scissor kick again. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, okay, yeah. you're not allowed it's scissors. A, it's reverse Fosbury. <laughs> <laughs> it's a reverse Fosbury. Um, another very cool origami figure was this guy called Robert Lang. Did you guys read about him? You say he's yeah. an origami figure. Is that a human in the origami world, or was he made of paper? Uh, he's not made of paper. He is just into paper. Got it. And a bit like this guy, Andy, he was a physicist. He worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and then he decided he preferred folding paper. And he was this math prodigy. He was doing very well in physics. And it was 2001, he finally decided to give it all up because it was taking up so much of his time folding paper things. And he's been very useful with his origami. So, for instance, airbags are made based on origami principles oh, now. Okay. And that's because that's they went cool. to Robert Lang. And they said, look, oh. we really like the way that you can fold something really small and then it can expand really big. Like, he was able wow. to do that. On that note, in 2013, there was a company which announced it was inventing an origami condom for Bill Gates. Not for Bill Gates. Has he got such an unusually shaped penis yeah. that he has to have a special condom? Sorry, made. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation <laughs> is what I mean. I was using it as shorthand and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Please don't sue. <laughs> There was a designer called Danny Resnick, and he had been he'd worked out an, an origami condom, which um, apparently was much more comfortable to put on. It, you know, it fit on more easily, and it opened up like an accordion. Um, I can play the accordion a little bit, and when you first open it up, it makes quite a weird noise. It, I <laughs> don't it... know if it wheezed as it um, <laughs> as it was opened up. Anyway, it never happened because Resnick himself was accused of fraud the next year and had to pay back the public funds he'd been granted. So oh. the world is still waiting for the origami condom. It would be great if it did play a tune. As, as you I don't think it. <laughs> you can't get that little keyboard onto something that size. I don't think it's just gonna sound. Every time you have sex, it's gonna sound like a sea shanty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Soon will the weatherman come. <laughs> well, I hope it is soon. <laughs> Hi, 
Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James, at James Harkin, Andy, at Andrew Hunter M, and Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Or you could go to at no such thing or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are there. Do check them out and do look at our upcoming tour dates. We are back on the road later this year. Hopefully we can see some of you there. If not, keep listening because we will be back next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.